0: They say it takes 10,000 hours to become an expert at something. So to qualify as a self-described professional dialysis patient, you've got to spend a lot of time on dialysis.
1: We figured out I've been a dialysis patient for 38 years.
0: That's dialysis patient, John Chekowitz. I'm Monica Fox, Senior Director of Outreach and Government Relations for the National Kidney Foundation of Illinois. And your host for this edition of The Journey Continues. John and his wife Sarah join us today for The Journey Continues to share how he thrives on dialysis and how they live a happy fulfilled life. This episode is sponsored by Fresenius Kidney Care. Hi John, thanks for joining us today. How'd your kidney journey begin?
1: My kidney journey began back in 1983 when I was Diagnosed with a nephritis, I was employed, and I was uh, asked to do a physical. And at that physical, they determined that I was spilling 64 grams of protein in just a, a urine sample. And that night, I went into the hospital. And that week that I was in the hospital, they did a kidney biopsy, and then they found out that I had the membranous glomerulonephritis.
0: How'd you feel when you received that diagnosis?
1: I was a bit naive. After getting the diagnosis, I basically thought, well, I'll just take some pills, I'll get a prescription, and my problems will be solved. And that was far from true. (laughs) It was the beginning of a, a lifelong journey in my case.
0: Yes, kidney disease is definitely a journey. What advice and treatment did you receive at this time?
1: What ended up happening, I got a nephrologist and that was at a hospital in the suburbs and I was also being monitored and taken care of by our family practitioner as well. I started probably on high-dose steroids and they were monitoring my care over in over a three-month period. I gained a lot of weight. I went from 140 pounds to 180 pounds and at that moment, my family practitioner, decided that maybe the doctors that I was with at the time weren't managing my care properly. And so he got us a second opinion at Rush Presbyterian Hospital with Dr. Lewis, and I transferred to care at Rush Presbyterian Hospital. At the time, I think I was on maybe 18 different medications. They would prescribe a medicine and and this was at the the doctors in the suburbs. And then I'd have side effects and they'd prescribe another medication because of the side effects. And so I was just on so many different things. And of course the significant weight gain made it very difficult for me to walk around. I was in high school at the time. I was a junior in high school. I actually got so bad. I was out of school and I had to have tutors to finish my education and that would have been my senior year. When I went to Rush, within a short period of time, they had me off of all the medications and it was kind of like they were starting from scratch. I went back on high dose steroids. I think I was on two medications, prednisone and then a blood pressure medication. I guess it was in 1985 is when things started getting to the point where my creatin was high. And then we were discussing various options for dialysis because I I needed to get uh, help. And that's when I started the study for peritoneal dialysis, so I was on the study at Rush and I started doing CAPD.
0: As a high school student, how'd you manage to stay focused on school and all the things that really concern a teenager?
1: I remember I was in the hospital often after the diagnosis and it just, my body was adjusting and I was having difficulties every day, I was having difficulties breathing and with the weight gain and just all kinds of problems and so I was frequently in the hospital and I remember on on one particular occasion and this is when I was at Rush I was worried about tests and homework assignments and they were just like don't worry about that you know this is more important than school right now and that really put me at ease you know the whole time I was at Rush you know transferring to those doctors it really saved my life because I was able to my care in their hands. And I I really felt confident with them. And they were a wonderful team. And it it really took a lot of pressure off of me and a lot of worries off of me and my family. Starting with dialysis, you know, it was everything was a new adventure. And I, I liked the peritoneal dialysis. And it is a very flexible system.
0: Yes, peritoneal dialysis is flexible it's great that it worked out for you. And when you had to switch to in or hemodialysis, you also had an awesome support system.
1: In terms of how it affected my life, that was probably the main priority was my health. I had tutors in school so I could get through my senior year. You know, I was at home focusing on health was the most important thing at that time.
0: During all of your health challenges, you never gave up on your education. How'd you manage that?
1: And me and my wife, we, we joke around because when I graduated high school, I went to a junior college and I think we figured out it took me eight years to get through a junior college because I would get sick and I'd have to cancel my classes and start all over again. But I had real supportive parents at the time and, you know, everybody was okay with it. I was living at home and uh, that's how it worked out for me, <laughs> you know, living life, dialyzing, going to school. And you know, anybody who has a chronic illness knows, you're in the hospital a lot, you're at your doctors a lot, you're seeing different doctors and, but it becomes your life, you have to take care of those things.
0: Yes, healthcare is primary, especially with a chronic illness. When did you decide to try to get a transplant? I
1: think I was on dialysis for a year. And then we decided to get on the list. So I started in 85, So I I would imagine in 85, we did talk about transplantation, and I think I did not get on the list because we were going to go through the process of seeing if any family members wanted to donate an organ, and we just assumed that would work out, and unfortunately, it didn't, and when that happened, I would say it was probably about a six-month time frame, and then I was on the uh, cadaver transplant list.
0: How long did you wait on the deceased donor list for a transplant?
1: I guess it was a year because in in nineteen eighty six is when I received my first transplant, and that was at Rush Presbyterian Hospital.
0: Why did you decide to get a transplant?
1: I thought it was important to you know take the ultimate you know the possibility of curing it, so I wouldn't have to dialyze. At the time, I was at Rush Presbyterian, so I lived in the suburbs, and I was driving forty five minutes every other day. I was a Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, dialysis patient in center. It just seemed it was worth the risk. Let's see if we can get a transplant, see how that works out.
0: How'd everything work after your first transplant?
1: The first transplant didn't work out very well. Unfortunately, I was going in after the transplant once a week for blood. I think the longest I got where I wasn't going in to see doctors was a three month period. And then my first appointment after that three month period, it showed that I was cyclotoxic and that I was losing the kidney at that point.
0: How'd you feel when you learned that your kidney was failing?
1: Well, that's devastating and you're disappointed. Then you know it's back to dialysis again.
0: How soon did you decide to try for another transplant?
1: I think they told me I had to wait a period of time before I could get back on the list, but I was back on the list as soon as I could. And then I was back in, you know, back in the city, and, and then and Rush Presbyterian had gotten rid of their in-center dialysis program, and then I was at Circle Medical Management. And we kind of sat back, and I had a conversation with my parents, and we decided, okay, this didn't work out. We'll get on the list again. We thought, well, if I'm going to be dialyzing for an extended period of time, not knowing when another transplant was going to be available. Um, They told me I was highly sensitized and so it would be very difficult to get another transplant. So we decided that we would dialyze closer to home and, and we chose to do that for a short while. And then unfortunately, what ended up happening when I was in the suburbs was the kidney became infected and the doctors out in the suburbs Didn't seem to, at the dialysis unit anyways, didn't realize what was going on and I had to transfer care back to the rush doctors. And as soon as they got me back to the hospital, they did an emergency nephrectomy. Then of course I was back, back on dialysis again, (laughs) (laughs) continuing with dialysis because in the suburbs I was already, you know, doing dust. So now I was back with rush again for a couple more years. And then i decided i wanted to go to a unit closer to my home so i transferred to loyola medical center my doctors at rush recommended the doctor there his name was jesse Haynu. so i saw him for many years that was in 1991 and then i got on the transplant program right away at loyola and in 1993 i got my second transplant and that was with dr kinsler at loyola and that kidney worked out really well. I had that one for 2 years and 7 months. So that was a nice vacation from dialysis. During that 2 years and 7 months, I had transferred to Elmhurst College where I met Sarah and in 1996 we got married and I had to start dialysis on my honeymoon <laughs> or a little a little bit before. So we got married and, um, I had to start dialysis again and we went to Walt Disney world for our honeymoon. And I remember having to get up three days a week and then I had to drive an hour away to dialyze, had to do what I had to do. But, you know, a lot of people ask me about my journey and everything that's gone on and you really have to pull positives out of everything that's happened. So if I wouldn't have got sick. I wouldn't have met my wife, and I wouldn't have the wonderful son that we have. So there are positives.
0: That is an amazing positive outlook. How would you quantify your journey so far?
1: Altogether, we figured out I've been a dialysis patient for 38 years. They told us after I lost the second transplant that I had to wait three years before I could get on the list. So after that three years, I got back on the list. And then in 2000... I got my third kidney transplant and that was University of Wisconsin. With that transplant, I had a chronic rejection. So I was in the hospital for 30 days. That last day, the kidney started working, which was nice. And uh, so for two years, I was off dialysis, but I really needed to be on dialysis because the kidney really didn't work. And I didn't feel well for that two year period. So in 2002, I was back on dialysis again. I really looked forward to getting back on dialysis because, you know, I just I just didn't feel well. In 2006, we had our son, Jack, and he was a wonderful blessing. And I was, of course, the stay at home dad at that point in time. After I lost my third transplant, I stopped working. So I had been working in the city for many years. And after that third transplant and everything that had happened with that, it it made it very difficult to work. The stress of work was causing lots of problems. There were situations where I would hop on the train to go home. Sarah would meet me in a different town, pick me up from the train station, take me to the hospital, and I'd have procedures done, and I'd have different things. And I remember one time I had to have like an infusion that happened over through the evening. So she picked me up, dropped me off. I stayed overnight, got the infusion in the morning. She brought new clothes, took me to the train station. I went back to work. (laughs) I remember one time I had to have my, had to go to interventional radiology because of my access wasn't working. And the same thing, hopped on the train. She picked me up close to the hospital took me to the hospital, went to interventional radiology. And and just my memory of it at this point in time was that during the test, I was having difficulties breathing and I was asking for my inhaler and it was kind of a mess. And I just remember when it was all done, I was walking down the hall and I had my shirt on and where they had just worked, started bleeding. There was blood all over my shirt. It was a mess. That was just some, some of the things that happened. You know, I think all dialysis patients at some point in time are probably dealing with adverse things that need to be addressed immediately. And those are the things that we have to do.
0: Oh my, that sounds very stressful.
1: So I wasn't working, staying home with my son, who was very active in school through his elementary years. But I was finding that the hemodialysis every other day was becoming more and more difficult for me. It typically would dialyze in the evening, which sometimes you're doing really late nights Then I would go to sleep and then get up in the morning for my son. And then that day I'd be wiped out as all three-day week dialysis patients know. The next day sometimes can be extremely difficult. What I would do is I would set up a barrier from the back room in the kitchen and me and my son would sit back there and I'd sit on the couch and try to play with him and watch him. But he would just kind of run around, do whatever he wanted. And because um, I, I didn't have the ability to get up and chase him through the house. So I had to contain him in the back room. And I think he liked it. You know, we used to do this one game. We used to play hot lava and we would take all the cushions and pillows and throw them all over the place. And then he would we would set up an obstacle course and then he would climb over. And of course, he couldn't step on the floor because it was hot lava. Those are kind of the fun things that we would do just to pass the time. It became more and more difficult on those days. And I was tired and fatigued and had no energy. And one particular day we went into the, the unit and I happened to see the next stage machine sitting in one of the rooms. And I asked about it they said, well, it's a daily hemodialysis. The patients are on it in five to six days. And I said, I want to do that. And so we started the process of me and my wife going in and training for that machine. Years ago, I had an opportunity to get on the study. And when I heard you had to cannulate yourself five days. Oh, my gosh, I don't know if I can do that. But this time I welcomed it because the home hemo three days a week just wasn't working for me. So I was really open to learn more about the machine. And so we started the training and actually there was a person that was ahead of me and that person canceled. So I became the first patient. In 2011 at the Fresenius unit that I was with to start the next stage daily hemodialysis and originally I started six days a week and I think at that point it was two and a half hours and my numbers were really good I had really good blood numbers so they suggested I could go five days a week and I could have two days off I just couldn't take those two days in a row and so that uh, I started doing that and that was amazing the machine is a fantastic piece of equipment and i can dialyze in the morning at night or any time that i need to just as long as i get my five treatments a day and when i get off the machine i'm fine i can get up and i can do whatever i need to do there is no downtime i really don't experience any fatigue after the machine i mean there are times that i'll dialyze and when i'm finished i'll sit In my chair for about an hour until I feel ready to get up and, you know, do what I have to do. But the flexibility is amazing. And the ability to travel is also fantastic.
0: That's great. It sounds like that's been life-changing. How do you ensure that you live a full life on dialysis?
1: I've always said from the beginning that I've been in denial about all of this dialysis. And so I try to do everything that I can possibly do. The things that Everybody does, you know, go grocery shop, cook meals, visit with friends. We've bought a travel trailer a few years ago. And so we go on short trips, and the dialysis machine is portable. So I'm allowed to bring my supplies and machine. And we go on, I think the longest trip we went on was to Tennessee. And I think that was a two week trip. And that was a monumental amount of supplies to bring but that worked out really, really well. And um, typically when we travel, we do within three hours. Now we'd like to do weekend trips and things like that. But just having the next stage machine gives me the flexibility to do just everything that I need to do.
0: After all that you've been through, why have you decided not to pursue transplant again?
1: Yes, it is true. I am not on a transplant list. I think that the machine I have now allows me to do everything that I need to do. I don't know if I would go on a transplant list again after the last transplant, but I feel good. I think I feel good. There are days that I get up in the morning and I take my son to school. I come back home and I'll sleep on the couch for two hours. So that happens. (laughs) And I can also sit on the couch and, you know, watch pain dry for several hours. But those are in cases when I'm not feeling well. And that happens with all patients, I think, at least I can get up and I can do the things that I need to do. And I, you know, I really wish I would have discovered the next stage machine earlier than 2011, but, you know, everything works out for a reason. I do have great support here at home. I should mention that because if it wasn't for my wife, she picks up a lot of slack because the days that I don't feel well or the four or five days that I don't feel well, my wife does everything. So that really helps out. Enough cannot be said about loved ones and family members that support us and support me because they really have a burden on their shoulders as well.
0: Sarah, it sounds like you're an amazing supporter and care partner. Was dialysis or transplant easier for you?
2: Ooh, that's a a good question. So I met John when he had his transplant. So as he mentioned in 1993, um, he had a transplant. We met in 1993 at college. So that is really all I knew in the beginning. And pretty much everything I heard about prior to 1993 and his dialysis kidney journey was, there was a lot of negative in that. So when We decided to get married, and just prior to that, he was losing the transplant. I was very scared because I had heard a lot of stories. And there was a wonderful nurse at the Elmhurst Hospital Dialysis Unit who answered every question for me and alleviated a lot of my fears. And dialysis had changed over the years. So I don't know if I can say one is is easier than the other, and certainly now with having Next Stage or having the prior home systems, as John has said, that really offers so much flexibility in our daily lives and to make adjustments, whether it's to take a trip or be available for our son, the flexibility of home dialysis is really, really great.
0: How'd you manage the emotional impact of John's journey?
2: You know, right before John and I got married, there were a few individuals who had my best interests at heart, who tried to provide me with information about what it may be like to be married to someone who had kidney problems, dialysis and what that future could look like. And it was really upsetting at the time and I remember going to my dad and saying, "Dad, here are here are the things that these people are saying to me and you know, I don't know what to do." And then I remember my dad saying, "You know, Sarah, what would you do if you and John got married and all of a sudden he was diagnosed with this for the first time?" And I said, "Well, I would stay married to him." And my dad looked at me and he said, "Well, you have your answer right there." That was, you know, really wonderful advice from my dad. And now John and I, yeah, we've been married 27 years now, which is wonderful.
0: When time came, what was the process of making treatment decisions? Did you do it together?
2: Absolutely. You know, always together. John, with his years of being a patient, definitely has the most say, but he always is considerate about how it impacts the family.
1: Yeah, we always have discussions about, you know, what's the next step and, you know, taking family into consideration and how it's going to impact our lives. I think it's important that we have these conversations so that everybody feels they're involved.
0: John, what advice do you have for patients who are starting this kidney journey?
1: I think probably the most important thing is get as much information as you can. You have to really educate yourself in the different modalities of dialysis, and you need to learn your options that are available to you. You have to really arm yourself with knowledge. And although it's very difficult, you really have to research to decide what is going to be the best thing. Talk to your doctors, talk to other healthcare professionals, get second opinions. If you could talk to somebody that's on the different systems to get their viewpoint i tell people often especially when you talk to doctors it's not what they tell you it's what they don't tell you and that is very critical and those are the things that you have to try to figure out yourself unfortunately
2: one other thing if i can add to john has been a, a good resource for other patients. So often a nurse may come to him and say, hey, we have this new patient. Would you be willing to have a conversation with them about kind of your story? And I've had physicians ask me the same thing. You know, would you be willing to talk to somebody whose care partner has some questions? Because as John said, you know, there there are things that your physician can tell you about the treatment, but they might not be able to answer questions about you know what is it like to live with a dialysis patient, or how how do you manage a household with a person with this diagnosis? So when reaching out and finding, is there somebody that you can talk to that is ex- living this right now? Can I add one other thing? Um, just we've had a lot of nurses along the way who really advocated for John and for us as a family, who really. reached out and tried to get us, you know, hooked up with the right centers for home dialysis. And when John mentioned our trip to Tennessee being our furthest trip away, we actually went to visit a nurse by the name of Wendy, who was our nurse at the Fresenius dialysis unit that got us hooked up, who became a lifetime friend also. So I don't want to miss out on the opportunity to talk about how You know, we've had a lot of wonderful advocates along the way.
0: Yes, absolutely. Everyone's kidney journey is different, and so are the ways we cope with it. At NKFI, we have patient programs, networking, and volunteer opportunities. To find out more information, go to nkfi.org. I'm Monica Fox, and this is The Journey Continues. This episode is sponsored by Fresenius Kidney Care. Prevention is a key part of our mission at the Kidney Foundation. That's why at the end of each episode, Dr. Melissa Prest offers a health tip.
3: Here's today's nutrition tip about reading food labels. Understanding how to read a food label can help you make smart food decisions that are good for your health. The food label will list how many servings are in a container and what the serving size is. Serving size is another term for portion or helping of the food we eat. You'll want to pay attention to what the serving size is as oftentimes many containers, cans, and packages are more than one serving. For example, a can of soup, it's likely to be two or more servings. The calories on the food label are telling you how many calories are in one serving, not the entire package. If you eat more than one serving, you'd have to multiply that by the number of calories listed to know how many calories you consumed. The percent daily value column lets you know how many nutrients are in one serving or the percentage of nutrients in that one serving. A percent daily value of 5% or lower means that it's a low source and 20% or higher is a high source. If you're looking for low sources of sugar or sodium, look for a product that has 5% daily value or less in per serving. Use the total fat, saturated fat, and trans fat listed to help guide you as you limit how much of these you eat. Too much saturated fat and trans fat may increase your risk of certain chronic diseases like heart disease, some cancers, or high blood pressure. Many people are not getting enough dietary fiber, vitamin A, vitamin C, calcium, and potassium in their diets. You can see what percentage of these nutrients are in a serving of the food at the bottom of the food label. Aim for 20 to 35 grams of fiber a day, and make sure you're drinking plenty of water as well. If you're looking for phosphorus on the food label, chances are you'll not see a specific amount, but you can look at the ingredient list to see if there are any added sources of phosphorus. You'll find those by looking in the ingredient list and looking for words that start with P-H-O-S. With today's nutrition tip, I'm Melissa Press, a registered dietitian nutritionist and the foundation dietitian for the National Kidney Foundation of Illinois.